Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I was so happy to be fighting back and standing up for who I was. We were happy. It probably was the happiest riot in the history of, of America. For a minute, I just stood there. I just stood and took it all in. And I knew something was changing. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Welcome to this week's episode, where we're going to talk about the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, an iconic moment in the history of the rights of gay and lesbian people in the United States. It's also an opportunity for reflecting on the universe that existed at the time of Stonewall, on government surveillance and oppression of gay and lesbian and transgender people, and on the changes that have been wrought over the last half century, both the changes that have made things so much better for many gay and lesbian people, and the failures to change that continue to affect many, many people in various areas of our lives. We'll start by hearing from Mark Siegel, a Stonewall veteran from Philadelphia. When I was 18 in the 1960s, LGBT people were invisible. We weren't on TV, we weren't on radio, we weren't, there was no such thing as a podcast. So growing up as an 18-year-old uh, in Philadelphia, a city of 1.6 million, I literally thought I was the only gay person there. So since you knew you couldn't ask people about who you were, since it was something that was only talked about in whispers, about the only place you could do that was at the library where you might, if you were lucky, find five books. And each of those books might tell you that you were uh, immoral, illegal, um, and mentally um, incompetent. And I didn't feel like that was me. And I wanted to escape that Philadelphia invisibility. So I went where I thought there were other gay people at 18 years old, which was New York. And I moved to New York uh, on May 10th, 1969, a date which I will always remember because to me that represented freedom. And for the first day I could begin to be myself. When you went to New York at that point, there were no neon signs 
which said where there's a gay area, because even in New York in 1969, it was illegal to be gay and gay people could not legally congregate. Gay people could not go into a bar and ask for a drink. A bar that served known homosexuals would lose its liquor license. So one of the few places you could do that in was an illegal bar called the Stonewall. And in the Stonewall, uh, you could be yourself. It was a dingy, illegal uh, bar which served watered-down drinks. But when you went inside, you could be yourself. And that was the magic of Stonewall. On June 28, 1969, the first day of the Stonewall Uprising, Mark had only been in New York for about seven weeks. In New York at the time, it was relatively a regular thing for the police to come in and raid the Stonewall. I didn't know that that night because for me, um, 18, uh, I had never been in a raid before. And so when the police came in, I was sort of shocked and terrified, to be honest. Uh, But what usually happened, I found out later, was they would come in, take their corruption money uh, and just leave. But that night was unusual in the fact that they barged in, threw people against the wall, roughed them up a little, um, hurled every kind of insult you can imagine us, which we've heard our entire lives. And then what shocked me the most was they went to people who looked like they were prosperous or successful and literally asked them to take out their wallets and took the money from those wallets and put it in their pockets. That, I think, showed me how little they disregarded us that we meant nothing to them. This was the police stealing. And what are we to do? Call the police? They were the police. And then slowly but surely, they allowed us to leave the bar by carting us. And we didn't disperse. And the police, they got their corruption money. They did what they wanted to do. um, And they were ready to leave. Every time they opened that door, we wouldn't leave. We eventually started throwing stones, cans, or what anything we could find on the street at those doors. And the police literally were afraid to open the door. They were imprisoned inside Stonewall. It is the first time that we imprisoned our oppressors. That's the reason why it's called a riot. And that's the reason why it's history, is for the first time we fought back as a people. As for me, standing there, you know, I felt full of adrenaline um, while I was terrified inside the bar. Once I got outside the bar, my attitude, mind, body all changed. It became supercharged, full of adrenaline, um, and very joyous. I was so happy to be fighting back and to standing up for who I was. And I'm sure everybody who was there felt the same exact way. We were happy. It probably was the happiest riot in the history of of America um, because we were fighting back for the first time. Uh, there was just a scene of joy. Um, I'm sure the police didn't feel that way. I think they were terrified. Um, they had never seen anything like that. They'd always thought they could do whatever they wanted to us. Um, and this went on for hours. And I literally at one point was standing across the street watching the scene in front of me. And I remember thinking um, that was going to be what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And at that time, there was no term called gay activist. Um, So I didn't know what the hell I was going to be. I just knew that's what I was going to do. And I also thought I'd be poor for the rest of my life because you didn't get paid to be a professional gay activist. There was no salary attached to it. But it was my passion then, and it's my passion now. Mark Siegel went on to become the founder and publisher of the Philadelphia Gay News and the president of the National Gay Newspaper Guild. Another person whose life was deeply affected by Stonewall 
is Joan Nessel. Joan is a truly fascinating person. Born in 1940, she protested against the activities of the House Un-American Affairs Committee. She became an activist, ultimately, joining a wide range of lesbian and gay rights groups. She became a writer, a professor. She founded the Lesbian Herstory Archives, and she has continued to teach and think about questions of liberation and the erotics of desire from the time of Stonewall very much up to the present. She joined us all the way from Australia. Hello. Hi, Joan. Hi. It's Noah Feldman. How are you? Okay. It's an early, dark morning here in Melbourne, Australia, so um, I hope I have a flow of words. <laughs> I'm sure you will. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. One of the reasons that we wanted to have this conversation with you is that we're all looking back 50 years later on the Stonewall Uprising and trying to understand its context, its meaning, what it meant to the people who were there in it. And I wonder if you would start by helping us to just set the stage for Greenwich Village in the late 1960s as a lesbian person making your way there. What was it like for you? Let me start 10 years earlier, because all these beginnings have befores. When I was 17, I was just a desiring young woman looking for a the lesbian touch. And that's what drove me um, to follow women who looked like lesbians. We're talking mm -hmm. 1958 mm -hmm. now, so in Greenwich Village, right? Down the streets to see where they were going. It was this whole underworld that I was desperate to be a part of. And you were from the Bronx, so how did you know to go down to Greenwich Village? Deviant cultures have a way of finding who needs them. And I, the village was... It seems to me, as soon as I knew there was another place outside of the Bronx, was known as a place for uh, queer people. And that, I want to say, that it was a very real word mm -hmm. then. Two words, mm -hmm. freak and queer, which is what ended my head as I entered this world. So uh, I walk into a place, it was a place called um, the Sea Colony, and it became part of me for 10 years. So the, yeah, the Sea Colony was also in the West Village. Just a short walk from from where uh, where the Stonewall Inn is. Yes. Tell us about the Sea Colony. So all our, our bars were policed, and we were criminals the minute we entered that those doors. So one way there was things called the Vice Squad, and the Vice Squad patrolled uh, queer, I'll use mm -hmm. uh, meeting places. And one way they did it was there was a phenomenon called the bathroom line. And what this was, there was a, a line for all these lesbian women drinking mm -hmm. a lot of beer, you know, <laughs> to go to the bathroom. As simple as that. But because we were considered criminal, our bathroom habits had to be policed, meaning only one woman at a time was allowed into the bathroom. And to control that behavior, now this was all done from the bar owners cooperating with the vice squad police mm -hmm. so they could keep the bar open. There was a butch woman that I've, um, whose job it was to give us our allotted amount of toilet paper. And why? Now, why? I understand the why the one person I would at the time. Why, on that the, line. why the allotment of toilet paper? Because that was the way to control. Mm. You couldn't get past her. It was to inform us that our behavior was being watched and being controlled. So it became part of our. I called it a line act. We flirted on that line. We we knew it awaited all of us. I had a double consciousness on that line, and maybe many others did too, that 
this was the state, and the state intruded on us, and is also part of, of the Stonewall time, was that we knew when we dressed to go to the bar that we had to put on three pieces of women's clothing or we could be arrested for transvestism. We couldn't, we weren't allowed to dance. We would be arrested for indecent behavior. So the, the, the line was part of it. It lived in my mind as the powers of the state to control our bodies. So part of the Stonewall story is desire. And that often does not get talked about. It's what propelled me to take on the state in those bars. Every Saturday night, the police, the same cop would come in. We were allowed to dance in the small back room. The front room was for straight people who wanted to come and look at the queers and they'd sit at tables. But the back room was where we could dance, women together. And it had a red light. And that was our warning to sit down and not touch each other because the police, the same cop was coming in for his payoffs. And he'd come into the back room, he'd look us over, he had a wad of bills in his hand. And invariably he would pick some butch woman who was with a very attractive femme that would enrage them and humiliate her. I witnessed one night when a butch woman was thrown up against the wall of the sea colony outside. And this cop made her take her pants down to show her that she wasn't really a man. You describe a very, very movingly the dance of desire and then the constant surveillance of the state. And you also spoke very convincingly that, about the thought that this was going to break, that there would be resistance. Can you describe to us what it was like when you, you were outside the sea colony, you heard that something had happened the day before at Stonewall, you, you went down uh, to, to Waverly Place. What did you see? What was the scene like? Yes, I'm walking from my um, my tenement apartment apartment from the East Village to the West Village to get to my bar, the Sea Colony. It's warm. I always remember the heat, like the heat of the body, but this was the heat of us of the night. And as we approached um, where Stonewall was, and it was it's a big thoroughfare. Everything changed. It was like a, a I've never been in a moment of in, of 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 conflict of you know armed conflict, but that's what it seemed like. There were flashing lights, and there were um, people. It felt like hundreds of people just running and milling around, and there were um, shouts of resistance, and there was energy, and there but there was also fear because I wasn't quite sure what was happening, and. For a minute, I just stood there. I just stood and took it all in. And I knew something was changing. And what I saw in the street that night, the second night after Stonewall, was the power of a people's dissent, the refusal to allow their bodies to be policed without respect for their being or their desire. And I, I, I keep emphasizing sexuality. That was what drove me as a 17-year-old into a policed place, knowing that I was I could be arrested any minute for doing a simple thing like touching another woman. But I wanted to be where my body, as any young person, could experience its own erotics. And so it, that, that was the public face of a humiliated erotics, I would say, that was in the street that night. And then also, it was also the courage of those who had the least doing the most. 
And this is what struck me in my own bars, because my bar was a working class bar. And I say it became our community. We go there every weekend. So we knew everybody and we probably, it was the one place we all met. So there were passing women, women who others thought were men, who worked as taxi drivers, worked at stock clerks, who did the things that men usually kinds of jobs. There, mm-hmm. there were sex workers. It was um, a huge meeting place of pariahs is the word. And that is the word that has been haunting me. Um, both for, you know, I'm a working class girl who lived on ideas and Hannah Arendt's idea of the pariah. I think mm-hmm. that's part of what's happened at Stonewall. It's when the pariahs taking everything with pride that made them and also what the society has judged and doing something different with that heritage. And there was an exuberance. There's an exuberance when without nothing, you make love in the face of the state. And do you think that, do you think that, that, that mode of resistance that you're describing gave a certain strength or a certain beauty or a certain form of resistance that's actually difficult for later generations to to recapture or to to reimagine because you know for later generations there's of course still homophobia there's still bias there's still transphobia none of those things has disappeared but typically and certainly in Greenwich Village but typically elsewhere in the United States too it's less likely that the state would be the primary source of surveillance less likely that the state would be the primary source of force or violence. So but there's been, know, in that degree, some, th- some things have begun to change significantly. I speak a lot with young people. And they ask me the same question, or they used to, and they, they learned. And they say, oh, I wish I'd come out when you did. It was so, you know, you had to, it was so exciting. And I look at them, I say, don't you worry, your times will give you your stonewall. And that is happening. My main concern is the rise of the fascistic right. These privileges that we're given, all these so-called recognitions, one, can be taken back very quickly as Trump and his ilk unravel democratic institutions. But look look at the contrast. I'm So in, in 1958, I'm in a bar where every part of me is policed. But I felt so alive. I knew, I knew I wasn't going to take that. I knew nothing they could offer me was worth the culture we were creating under such duress. And now, in one of the most obscene political moments in American history, queer people are being, in a way, celebrated. New York is flowing with queer love. And that's wonderful in some ways. And I see how it moves the young people. And I see all of that. But the larger context, the force movement, the shutting of doors to migrants, this is all part of my queer self now. The pariah is always aware of when the door is shut, of who becomes the new face of the unwanted. People will say, oh, you must be so happy. You must be so happy being a gay person. You know, you don't have to take your allotted amount of toilet paper. Well, first of all, there are still many who are metaphorically. And secondly, there are new. Uh, humanity didn't doesn't end with a queer positioning in one time, in one place. Often there are there are what I, I hear are echoes or hints in your in your analysis of 
you spoke of working class consciousness, you spoke of identification across groups. And I wondered whether at any of these times that we've spoken about, you self-identified as a socialist or a yes, Marxist or, and, yes, and I wonder I how that, how do you think about the interaction between that identity and your, your other identities? Well, they're all of a piece. Our paths are like a rope, but I, my beginning point were the women who stood beside me and some were passing women. So they were, would be part of a trans um, community. Some were sex workers, and that's always been an important uh, community to me. Um, it was for them. Everything I did, in a way, was for them. They touched my young woman's body. They were the first who gave me that deep pleasure. And But more than that, more than that, they gave me a narrative of courage with bruises, with hardship, with economic deprivation. But they tried so full-heartedly to create a life for themselves. So I feel honored. I feel honored. And I feel honored to know the young people now who are trying to do the same in Trump America. Joan, thank you so much for taking us to the Sea Colony and to Stonewall and to the entire world of people for whom you've worked and uh, in whose honor you've described what, what you've been doing. Thank you. It's an extraordinary honor for me to have the chance to, to talk to you. And I'm so grateful to you for sharing your stories with us. Oh, I'm just sitting here pishing, but that's all right. <laughs> that's okay, too. That's, <laughs> oh, that's a good you. part of life as well. <laughs> no, you've, er, you've, er, you've earned that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege and fascinating to hear from people like Joan Nessel and Mark Siegel, who both lived in such an immediate and powerful way a series of crucial historical moments, a whole long, complicated period of historical evolution. It's made me reflect on a lot of things. Among other things, it makes me reflect on my extraordinary and lucky privilege as a straight, white, cisgender man with his own podcast, embarrassingly enough who gets to talk to people who are fascinating, to people who have confronted real fundamental challenges that beggar the imagination when they compare to anything that I've encountered in my life. It also makes me think, going forward, about how we should think about the legacy of civil rights struggles, like the gay and lesbian rights struggle that has followed Stonewall. Should we think of those struggles as models of what our society can achieve? Should we congratulate ourselves on what we've done and try to use that self-congratulation to extend new rights to other vulnerable people, like trans people. Well, that is part of it. I think if we don't tell ourselves these stories of success, we will give up trying. We will become pessimistic. We won't make the effort the next time. We need some myths of great success in civil rights to take us forward. At the same time, the great danger of that kind of self-satisfied self-congratulation especially from people like me who come from privilege, is to say, look how well we've done. We've extended rights to lots of people. That has the effect of allowing us to be blind to continuing violations of rights, to ongoing forms of discrimination, to structural discrimination that comes from the economy, 
not only from the government, but also from private sector entities, and to forms of exclusion that sometimes just pass by the consciousness of people who can get away with that, avoiding the consciousness of people who in fact suffer. So we need both. We need to pat ourselves on the back just a little bit in order to have encouragement for the future. But we also need to keep our eyes open. We need to make sure that when the next civil rights movement begins, as many have, that it doesn't take 50 years for us to say, there you go, something significant has been accomplished. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Roskowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Wow.